went on to Wolby up in the Adirondacks and yep. uh, dropped out after a semester because I was accused of practicing witchcraft. <laughs> uh, How did that happen? Well, I need to know, what you, were you burning incense <laughs> in your room or something? No, it was far, far less sexy. I was just asking questions and uh, I was pushing back against some of the bullshit. And finally, the dean of men called me in and he said, Look here, it says here in the Bible that rebellion is the same as witchcraft, and I will not have you practicing witchcraft here on oh. my campus. Oh, my God. And um, <laughs> so I was kind of like, yep, yeah, hey, hey, I got something in my pocket for you. And welcome to Growing Up Christian. I'm Casey. And I'm Sam. And we are enjoying uh, Memorial Day weekend, doing family stuff. Um, been uh, My sister and husband and my nephew came into town. And he's coming up on two this year. I think in August he's turning two. Oh, nice. Like, my parents have been so excited that, that they're coming. You know, because it's been hard. to They've gone back to Atlanta a couple of times to see him and stuff. But like, uh, yeah. you know, haven't, he hasn't been able to come here. And so like they've been like steadily stocking up on toys. <laughs> I think I think they've been stockpiling toys since like, uh, you know, since I was in high school or something like that. <laughs> right. like, you know, in uh, Home Alone 2, where he goes to the, like, like he walks into the toy store and it's just like, whoa, yeah, like magic music playing. I feel like that was my nephew coming into the house at my parents' place, just like basketball hoop, uh, you know, t-ball. I mean, he's got like trucks and cars and all of that stuff. He's got this little lawnmower that uh, you fill with bubbles, and when you push it, it pump, pumps bubbles out oh, of the yeah, side. Yeah. My kids had one of those. It that is early. Like, <laughs> it, did, it did not last long. That's like such a good toddler toy, dude. He put some miles on that thing yesterday. Yeah, man, it's uh, yeah. I so my my kids are they're they're near both grandparents, so like they, I mean, they love it. It's like the grandparents love it. It's and it's funny because you know just as much as anybody does, we've never really seriously considered like moving from the area we're in. Uh, but every time we talk about it, we're like. Man, it would feel like so like if you if you live far away from your parents and you have kids and it's like that's just how the kids grow up. It's like seeing the grandparents every once in a while, holidays when they fly out, whatever. Like that's just kind of the life you get used to. But even um even Jill and I were talking about it in the car and we're like, hey, it'd be cool because we just would love the idea of living near the ocean, uh, living on the ocean in a place that's generally warm all the time because Massachusetts just isn't fun for weather. And <laughs> so we were, we were talking about it and they, um, my daughter's just like, but then we, we wouldn't be near Grammy. And we're like, yeah. And it's like, that's the first thing she thought of. And you're like, man, that would be a really like, feel so like terrible to, to make, the, I know people do it and they move. And uh, usually it's like, I don't know, if you have to move, you move. But, you know, I don't have one of those jobs that takes me somewhere new and says, this is where you need to go now. But uh, that'd be the hardest thing about moving is just taking the kids away from family. 
that's all real close. Yeah, that would be tough. I think like I was, we moved several times when I was a kid, so I was a little used to it. But like my grandparents on my dad's side would usually like end up moving wherever we went. Yeah. So you know, my grandpa and my dad, you know, worked together in their business. So it was like if we if we left the state, they were probably coming along pretty soon. You know. <laughs> yeah. Man, so I I told you that um, my daughter, oh, both my kids are in soccer, and they use this med. So they're teaching the kids how to like kick the ball right and i did soccer when i was a kid and i don't really recall much about it uh i don't recall anything i was taught i did it for a little bit just like most little kids do but my kids as they're learning how to kick they uh pick a very strange metaphor to teach children how to kick a soccer ball and i'm curious as to what your thoughts are on it so they're like all right so they put the ball on the ground and they're like, you know, like, how, you know what Mickey Mouse looks like, kids? And they're like, oh, yeah. And like, he's got the big ears. It's like, pretend like that's like Mickey Mouse laying on the ground. And when you run up, you stomp on his ear and then you kick him in the nose. Like the soccer ball is his nose. And that's like, all right, stomp oh, on my his word. ear, kick him in the nose. Stomp on his <laughs> ear, kick him in the nose. And they just say it all day long. And I'm like, should I say something? I, that feels a little weird, a little aggro, but. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. And the kids are how old? Four, five. Oh, man. Yeah, that's a weird way to, to teach it. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I just, it came up. I, I, I thought of, I kept meaning to mention it because I was like, I wonder if anyone else had this experience of uh, being taught to kick a soccer ball by pretending Mickey Mouse is laying on the ground and you just stomp on his ear and kick him in the nose. Curb stomp Mickey Mouse, you know, <laughs> like we taught. Yeah. Uh, so dumb. I think it's stupid. Even one of the coaches was like, I know it's kind of weird, but I think it's funny. We're like, that's cool that you think it's funny. I mean, it's not even funny, but it's also a, definitely a weird thing to teach three, four or five year olds. But anyway, that's just me. <laughs> I'm just one of those progressive piece of shit parents who's too sensitive. So um Moving on, uh, I don't really care to spend a lot of time on that, but I did want to tell a story that Jill and I were talking about last night. We were talking about short-term missions trips, and of course, those have come up a few times on the podcast, uh, because how can they not? They're a big part of the lives of evangelical youth. Um, but my wife went on one in college. I, I think I don't think it was through Liberty, but Liberty kind of like promoted it f- uh, you know, you know who was part of it was uh, Ergen Canner. So for oh, people who cool. don't know or remember, um, Ergen Canner was like a, a a campus pastor who did, I think he did the Wednesday night church service for Liberty. Um, uh, he's a, he was a disgraced pastor. He had a, he, he told a lot of lies and they caught up with him eventually. So, um, but in, in the mean before that, he was, you know, people really liked him. He was edgy. He was one of the, I don't know. He's just kind of like a dick, really. But people thought he was tough and cool. He probably had like, uh, it's like a biker. T- he had like kind of a biker personality, I feel like, in some ways. Yeah, he was, he was entertaining. Like yeah. when you had to take, I took a New Testament class for him because you're obligated to. And uh, I took I took Old Testament first with another guy, and it was so boring 
It was miserable. And then I took Ergen Canner's New Testament class, which met for three hours once a week. So it was all in one shot. Yeah. And it was actually like not a bad class. I mean, it was kind of entertaining and stuff. And and I think that was he was like one of the few like big like high level staff members there that I actually like didn't mind listening to. Yeah. So when uh, the story came out that, you know, his entire uh, origin story was fake. Yeah, that was. Yeah, it was like. Oh my word! Yeah, yeah. what's real? Trust no one. Yeah, exactly. Now, I had him for a uh, Christian history class too. I mean, no doubt about it, the guy was smart. Like so, uh, you know, disgraced pastor for sure. Uh, he had a lot of knowledge in his brain. Like he could he could recite most of Christian, a large portion of Christian history without having to like review texts and things like. That. Like he was smart. So I, you know, I took the class with him, and it was good. Uh, I, I remember learning a good bit. Of course, it's like catered towards like Reformation period and things related to where evangelical Christianity was born out of. Uh, but regardless, so so there's this missions trip and it's a uh, cruise, a missions trip cruise. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> this is just getting a little true too transparently vacationing yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah uh and so when jill signed up for it i, I want to be specific that even at that point in our lives she was like i'm doing this to go on a cruise like i want to go on a cruise i can just it's cheap because it's like in the name of jesus and she was able to just go on a cruise so but that while they're on this cruise they um uh oh and hawk i believe Hawk Nelson played on this this cruise ship as well that week. Um, I regret not asking John Steingart about that. I probably still should. I might uh, have to hit him on Twitter or something. At him on Twitter and ask if he remembers going on a Christian cruise with Ergen Canner associated with Liberty <laughs> University. But um, so th- the intent was to go to different islands and go off on the islands for the day and do like your your missions work right so you dock wow. your, you dock your cruise ship and a bunch of white like kids just kind of trickle off and they go spread the gospel to a bunch of poor kids like who are just waiting there to hopefully get something from these people uh it's really weird you know, so serve yeah god so <laughs> but they hit a tropical storm and they only were able to dock once they were not able to like go to do anything, but the dude, that's just so fucked up. The the one thing they did when they landed, and my wife and her friend refused to even do this. Um, it was like when when it was presented to them as what was how they were going to share the gospel with the children that day. My wife and her friend were like, "There's absolutely no chance we're doing that." They were handing out tracks to these kids that looked like dollar bills. So the kids think they're real money and they're like flocking around the bus. Kids are throwing the money, the money looking tracks out of the bus while they're driving. Kids are like running to pick them up only to be crushed with disappointment when it's like spreading the gospel. Oh, it's like, what the fuck? Kind of dark, right? (laughs) Super dark. Oh my God. <laughs> that is like, 
That's unbelievable. That yeah. that might be like one of the worst ones I've uh, I've ever heard. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know the people at the top who are like putting this trip together were like, what what can we do to get people to like really go for these trips? make them look like money then they'll come running for it it's like to have a zero disconnect uh, i mean to be able to con- like not have like any human connection to like uh, they have to be sociopaths right to think that like this is a good idea well it's it's a, the means to an end you know like it doesn't matter what happens to poor people's bodies it's only <laughs> matters that they end up in heaven and with eternal life you know so you can do that sort of thing because you know your intentions are great. Oh my god! So it's like you you dock a cruise ship, which obviously in of itself screams I, we have money and we're coming here to vacation. And a bunch of kids get off, and they start slinging money all around. They're like, oh, I mean, everything about that is um, it's just you you the setup like the I, to have no understanding of what the optics of that are or to really and to not see it as a problem is i mean i guess that's why we've dealt with colonialism for you know a lot of human history they're just like this is great we're great you're gonna love it you're gonna love us you're gonna see this ship coming in from a mile away and you're gonna anticipate these people coming in and they just really believe that 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 they have such a inflated ego of about it it's so wild yeah depending on where you go i mean you could get real creative with it too i mean you could uh you could have some that look like meal replacement bars this <laughs> is like how do you make a gospel tract appear to be like clean drinking water yeah i know that's I mean, a tough we could one. put that to use in the u.s even yeah <laughs> like flint michigan just winging fake bottles of uh water out and when you know you open the cap and it's just like a message in a bottle yeah <laughs> where will you go when you die oh which is God. probably imminent yeah which is gonna happen soon because you don't have clean drinking water but <laughs> dude that's uh that's that's like the worst example i've ever heard i think yeah i mean <laughs> that's unbelievable <laughs> i had forgot about that i remember i i remember her going on that when you know because that was right after we started dating this was a long time ago i mean it, it had to have been like sophomore year, sophomore year of college for. So that was, I mean, that was, a, I mean, that's, we're getting old now, man. So that was a, a good bit back. So I had forgotten all about the story though. And we just, she rehashed it last night. Cause uh, I mentioned we had a conversation with somebody recently uh, on an upcoming episode about short-term missions trips. And that's when, it, that reignited that memory for her. I was like, oh yeah, I went on this cruise once. And I was like, oh shit, I forgot about that. Calling a cruise a mission strip is like one of the most like unveiled attempts of missionary work, if being a vacation for sure. Yeah, this is it's like the the missions equivalent of uh, you know used car lots sending you that like ad that looks like a handwritten letter until you <laughs> open it. Oh, you qualify for, uh, you know, near, near nothing financing on your, uh, used Corolla. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and of course I'm sure I don't, I don't know how many kids they took. There was like, it obviously has a limit cause you know, you can only fit so many people on a cruise ship, but 
it was a cruise. I mean, the entire time they were on it, it was like they had there was like shows and I mean, there, there's like you had all the food, you had the deck, everyone would just hang out on the deck and chill by the pool. Like it was a legit vacation. And of course, you throw in the tropical storm where you couldn't actually dock and to only get off the boat once you literally of course you couldn't really vacation hard in the middle of a tropical storm everybody had to be inside there were actually people on deck and she said it was pretty scary because like the waves were actually coming up over the deck of the cruise ship and like splashing the deck like wow. i mean it was a it was a lot now if those things they're the way they're weighted like it's not like they're getting tossed around by the ocean right but there was all the the <laughs> warning on. like to get off the deck because kids were like on the deck thinking this is cool wow look at all this like watching the waves and shit and they're like if you get hit by one of these waves you will be sucked out into the ocean you idiots like (laughs) yeah i think it depends on the boat too like my parents went on one when i was a kid for a work thing and it was like one it was just like one that went in between the hawaiian islands you know they were on it for like four or five days yeah and uh it was a small ship, so it wasn't like one of these giant carnival ships like that. And they said it was awful, just yeah. like tossed around, sick, you know, like just, they just had a terrible time the whole time they were there. But. I I have never really been much for, I, I've never done much on a boat, uh, you know, I've gone out on like on people's speed boats here or there or whatever, but I went on a whale watch once with somebody that owned a boat. This is when I was younger and they were like, they had a cabin below deck and they were just like, don't go below deck. Uh, if you're not used to it, it gets like the, the swaying below deck will really make you feel sick. And I didn't really get it. And I had to use the bathroom and I was like, so I just wanted to take a piss in the below deck in the cabin, whatever. And, just that, just going down there, taking a piss and coming back upstairs. I was finished. I had, to, I was like, I, I had to lay down <laughs> until we got back to shore. I was like, I'm going to throw up. Like I felt horrible. It didn't take, it took like, that was probably what? 60 seconds of just watch because like watching everything shift from side to side. Like when you're on a boat and you're like looking out at the water, you see like the boat going up and down. It's like but having like the sky view or like of everything and looking out into the ocean, you don't really pick up on how much you're bobbing up and down until you're like below deck in a cabin, watching it shift from side to side. Like you're holding on to stuff as you walk. You don't have any like sea legs or whatever. And you know, man, I was like, that was the most nauseous I've ever felt in my life without actually throwing up. I, yeah, I've never done well on boats and neither does April because we've tried to do a couple of different like, sh- you know, day long fishing trips when we've been near the ocean. Yeah. And we get like queasy and sick every time, <laughs> regardless <laughs> of what you take. And if you take like Dramamine or whatever it is, you know, for motion sickness, like that's kind of like giving yourself the flu for the day. Like you're going to feel like garbage from taking that too. Do you so, really? I've never taken yeah. it. That makes you feel sick. It just makes you feel like tired and achy and awful. Weird. It's uh, like you're, hey, we can get ahead of the uh, motion sickness by just making you regular sick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like when you're feeling nauseous and you, so you try to take Pepto-Bismol and it's just sort of like, 
Well, uh, you can wait and throw up, or you can throw up in two minutes and it'll be pink. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Throwing up, I was always afraid of. And then, like, we talked about this when my kids were sick, but that feeling after it happens, when you're just like, it almost instantly feels back to normal. You're like, oh, yeah. Glad that's so. Like, it's like you want that to happen now. As an adult, when you feel nauseous, I'm like, can I just fucking throw up already and get this over with? Like, yeah, just fist yourself in the throat. Yeah. <laughs> Hurry it along. Well, that's actually like a thing where, you know, you get like a, I, I'm reciting like uh, third hand information from a podcast here. So I might not be totally correct. What I've heard is that there's like a dopamine uh, rush that comes after you throw up. Okay. So like th- that that's, makes sense. that's part of why, you know, uh, people who struggle with bulimia have, have trouble with it. It's like, not only do you, you know, you feel like you've counteracted the, the bad food choices you've made or something like that, but you also get like this rush afterwards that makes you feel even better. So it's like a it's like a oh. level of relief that comes with it, and I think that's part of why people get so stuck in that cycle. You know, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, it sounds like it makes sense. I, I'm sure there's other. I'm sure that has maybe a little bit to do with why you just generally feel better after you throw up too, if even without having a struggling through an eating disorder, which obviously has other. <laughs> Other factors involved too, other than just that was a nice rush after I threw up. But right, right, right. right. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's like a it's like a secondary thing, and I I am speaking totally out of turn here. So you heard you know it that, from Doctor uh, Casey. No, <laughs> right. <laughs> I got that honorary doctorate, like Doctor Glenn Beck did from Liberty. Dude, I remember. Dude, I don't think I told this story when I was in like this was a college for a weekend experience. Uh, I went to Liberty for just for college for a weekend. This is after I knew I was going to Liberty. I just did it to because um, Jill was there and I wanted to, it was like a free weekend to go down to Liberty and see Jill. So, uh, you know, when you do college for a weekend at Liberty, you're supposed to go to like all the events, not events, but like they do stuff on the dorms. You stay on the dorms and they have like a meeting uh, some of the nights and they try to get you involved in all of that. Like you're supposed to get the full experience of what it would be like if you were there. And I was skipping all of that because I already knew I was going to Liberty. I didn't, I was just there for the free trip down and uh, I was going to hang out with Jill and on my way out, they were like, Oh, well we have like this, this meeting that you're supposed to be a part of. I was like, that's fine. Uh, I already am like, I'm not really here for that. So I'm just going to <laughs> hang out with my girlfriend. And they were like, they, you know, they do like just shitty college bond, like try to do like some team building exercises and they're always dumb. Uh, this one was someone was holding up like a, uh, a habanero pepper and he was like, they're trying to get people to eat it. And, they were like, all right, man, if you just eat this habanero pepper, then you can just like go. And I don't <laughs> like peppers. I've never eaten a hot pepper in my life. And I was just like, okay, fine. Thinking for some dumb reason that they wouldn't have been doing something that could have really hurt you. And I took this That's... thing, bit it, chewed it up, swallowed the whole thing, seeds and all. And immediately my face sinks and they look their jaws drop and they're just like 
oh no, he ate it. And they're like, oh, sh- he actually ate it. Shoot, shoot. And they start like panicking. And they're like, we were just messing with everybody. We didn't actually think anyone was going to eat this thing. Like, uh, and they're, they're like, or we thought you'd spit it out. It's like, oh my God. Um, and so I go to the bathroom. My mouth is like on fire, dude. Like, I, like I'm talking snot is just draining from my nose. I'm drooling. <laughs> my eyes are red and just pouring out tears. Like, and I like just running water, cold water in and out of my mouth. Like, constantly i'm like at the sink like breathing in water and one of them like runs out to grab a like a gallon of milk and they brings it i start like just drinking a bunch of milk and then they're like you are going to die tomorrow if you don't throw this up like oh that's such bad advice yeah they're like and i could already feel like my stomach was burning dude i could feel it in my stomach it hurt it felt like someone lit a fire in my stomach so i'm like but they're just like if you sh- like basically their argument was if you shit that out the next day it's going to burn your asshole and <laughs> i don't know i don't know anything uh so i like immediately start like that's the only that was the first time in my life i had ever been able to like like the panic set in so much where it's like almost an involuntary motion of like fingers down the throat push down as hard as you can and i just vomited up everything and like all the milk i just drank the pepper came up like everything and uh finally like i was able to like calm down and i'd left and met up with jill she was like uh, it's like i don't i didn't even tell her about what happened i don't really even know why i was just like oh sorry i was late it's like got they wanted to like have me part of the stupid thing on the dorm for a second <laughs> dude that's jumping in with both feet on the hot pepper thing yeah habaneros are rough yeah. And they taste bad. Yeah. Like that's uh, like a that's like a pepper you cook with, not just eat. It, you know? You, like you use them for the heat. But I don't like I didn't even like peppers like that at all. I, I don't think I'd ever It's like I just had no idea what I was doing when I ate that. But the cuz I had had like I don't know, certain like habanero food, like oh, something habanero and it's always just like a spicy food and those are always too much for. Me. I can't handle spice very much at all anyway. So to just like to have eaten that was like like i I can really recall that as like the most pain i've experienced as an adult like i haven't had a lot (laughs) but that was up there that's uh yeah what so that was like one of those junior high kid things for me where it was like i like hot stuff this is gonna be my personality yes there's always that guy (laughs) always that guy i was that guy and so I was always eating like hot sauce or whatever, you know, and I remember the grocery store near us had habaneros at one point and I had just heard about those. I'd never like actually seen one before. So I bought like a pack of them and I was doing that whole thing where I was like bringing them places and like, dude, you want to eat a hot pepper? Yeah. <laughs> and they're rough, dude. They beat you up. And I remember eating one. This There was this kid that was kind of a bully at school and he was dating my buddy Jesse's sister at the time or courting or whatever you want to call it. Um, so we were at Jesse's house and I had some of these peppers with me and we kind of did like the whole, like, Oh man, are you up to it? You up to the challenge? Don't be a wimp. Eat this pepper to uh, the bully kid. Right. And so he and I both agree we're going to eat one at the same time. So, 
we eat them. It's awful. Like burns really bad, everything. And then, you know, we're going to a basketball game that night. Like we had to play basketball that night. And dude, I just like, I just gave myself like the worst stomach ache coupled with like crippling diarrhea (laughs) (laughs) before this basketball game. And, uh, yeah, I think I managed to play worse than I normally did at basketball. <laughs> it been, uh, the only thing that would have made that story better is if you actually shit your pants while playing basketball. <laughs> okay, so we, <laughs> we don't have time for this today. Put um, a in it but your, your missions trip deal, I have a missions trip story that like, it's it's like legendary status with some of my friends and everybody's been asking me when I'm going to tell my Mexico missions trip story. So I, let's, I'll, I'll do that next week when we've yeah. got the time to adequately convey the humiliation. And oh, I'm looking forward <laughs> to it. I'm very much looking forward to that. So our guest uh, this week is author, blogger, Benjamin L. Corey. Um, he wrote, uh, it's got two books. Uh, one's called Undiluted, Recovering the Radical Message of Jesus. And the other one is called Unafraid, Moving Beyond Fear-Based Faith. Uh, and he is the author. Uh, uh, he's a guy. Behind, he does, his blog is called Formerly Fundy. Um, so he's a, another, you know, formerly fundamentalist kind of Christian turned progressive Christian. He has had a lot. Uh, he had a lot to say um, in an interesting He's got an interesting story that uh, a lot of it was news to me. Um, you know, I'd been following his work for a number of years. We get into that. Um, I had kind of followed his blog almost from the start. And uh, to hear some of the twists and turns of his life was uh, fascinating. Um, diff- some of it very difficult, but uh, he's he's got an amazing journey. And he was very open and honest with us about about that journey and all the, the hardships and the ups and the downs and uh it was it was beautiful it was wonderful and i'm super thankful for his, his honesty about all of it i think it's going to be beneficial for a lot of people who have had uh particular struggles uh through faith post faith um whatever it is there's there's a lot in here and, and I'm, I'm thankful that he was so uh, up for getting into the nitty-gritty of some of it so, you know, um, what do we want to tell you before we sign off and jump into it? Uh, jump into the Discord, leave us a review on iTunes, uh, give us a five-star rating, do all that. Um, it'd be really great. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. It's all available. It's all out there. And Sam uh, against his every uh, whim just just started us a TikTok, so yeah. we're gonna we're gonna give that a try. Uh, deconversion therapy has a killer TikTok. Their their videos are hilarious. So we're, t- we're taking a page out of their book since they've they've kind of mastered the medium. Yeah, and I have been resistant to TikTok forever. I don't want to use it at all, uh, but I'm gonna try. Even though I feel, uh, I guess everyone's on it now. Part of me still feels like it's not for me, but that's not true. TikTok's for everybody. <laughs> So uh, we'll take a quick break and then we'll uh, jump into our conversation with Benjamin Elcorey. Hey, everybody. We are back with our guest, Benjamin Elcorey. 
Ben, thanks so much for hanging out with us this evening. It's good to see you. Oh, absolutely. No, my pleasure. Thanks for, uh, for inviting me to come on. Yeah. So Ben, you are, uh, I mean, author, blogger. I got to know you through, through blogging years ago, mm-hmm. um, on, on Pathios. Pathios yeah. was like, like many people like me as a, um, when you, after that was found, that was a, a big time catalyst for reevaluating some of your beliefs because there was a lot going on there. Oh, uh, for sure. No, I mean, back in the, I think I started in, uh, Oh, I think it was, you know, 2015 or, you know, late 2014, early 2015. Um, and, you know, I was still in seminary at the time. It was uh, summer, um, you know, was, uh, you know, working at a church, although not getting paid and just decided, you know what, I'm going to start a blog today. Um, and uh, somehow wound up at Pathios and I just, I fell in love with Pathios because they tr- were truly hosting the conversation on faith. And um, it was, it was originally run by some just uh, really amazing people. Uh, and it's just kind of sad where things went, you know, after a while, but yeah. Um, that was kind of weird too. Uh, for people who don't know, it got bought out by like a conservative Christian co- like group, isn't that right? And then they kind of changed some rules about how things worked. Yeah, well, you know, I wouldn't so much say it's a conservative Christian group. It's it's more that you know it was a private company who also owned some conservative stuff, and there were some conservatives there. Um, you know, they didn't have a problem with the liberalism. It was more that they. Uh, it was too business to them um, and, and that, you know, the folks who originally owned it, they truly just wanted to create this space where we talked about ideas. Um, and with the new ownership, it was, you know, oh, no, we need clicks, you know, this, that, it do, you know, just doesn't matter. Um, and so, you know, they just lost the, the passion for quality content. Um, you know, Pathios had been kind of an invite only place where everything was kind of carefully curated. Um, and it just kind of turned more into like a Christian blog spot. And so, um, you know, uh, you know, I tried to change it from the inside out and had, uh, worked there as the, the, uh, progressive Christian channel manager for a couple of years uh, during their transition from, from old ownership to the new ownership. Um, but after a while I just had to tap out and, uh, you know, go solo. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. I can see that now. Cause I, I, I thought that was my understanding of it was definitely a little off because when I'm looking at, like, I expected to see some content changes and, uh, when that never happened, I was like, maybe I am wrong about how this played out because. Yeah. Well, know, for the, for the, I mean, they, as individuals, you know, they were on the more conservative side, but from my standpoint as an insider, they really didn't care, you know, about the con it wasn't so much the content. They just wanted more clicks. You yeah. Know? Um, and so it just, it, you know, and when you do that, you, you just continually sacrifice quality. Um, and the more you do it, the more you sacrifice quality. And, and it just got to the point where it was so, um, you know, unpersonal, um, and just kind of poorly managed. Yeah. So I, one of the things I find interesting about people like you who found, um, kind of blogging at that point mm-hmm. is, um, and at, 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 you know, you said you're in seminary, like doing it for that long, uh, within the Christian, Christian atmosphere, there's so much that changes over that mm-hmm. period of time, especially if you're in a more progressive bent, you continue to like evolve and evaluate your beliefs and, and they change over time. So like when you started, when you decided to start getting the blogging, was that, were, were you already making those shifts? Um, mm-hmm. and I guess actually a better place to start is the, the type of Christianity you grew up in. Sure. Uh, 
So, well, I mean, my blog, formerly, you know, uh, famously called Formerly Fundy, so kind of started that whole whole uh, term there. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I grew up in, you know, in my early days, I, you know, I grew up in rural Maine, you know, the son of, you know, multi-generation dairy farmers. Um, and so we were, you know, very conservative, um, but I wouldn't quite say fundamentalist. Um, but, you know, uh, certainly, you know, all the toxic, you know, evangelical stuff, um, but, you know, not all the way over to the other side. And it was when I was in high school that I got kind of tangled up with this organization uh, called Word of Life Bible Institute. Yes. My wife was like, really? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So, yes, I was a Wolby person. And oh, that great. that was how I got into fundamentalism. Um, and I actually did two mission trips with them uh, when I was in high school, uh, 1992 to Russia and Ukraine, and 1993 to Hungary, Romania, and Poland. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, they were amazing experiences. But then uh, in 94, you know, after graduating high school, I went on to Wolby up in the Adirondacks and yep. uh, dropped out after a semester because I was accused of practicing witchcraft. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, How did that happen? Well, I need to know what you, were you burning incense in your room or something? No, it was far, far less sexy. I was just asking questions, and uh, I was pushing back against some of the bullshit. And finally, the dean of men called me in, and he said, "Look here, it says here in the Bible that rebellion is the same as witchcraft, and I will not have you practicing witchcraft here on oh. my campus." Oh my god! And, um, <laughs> So I was kind of like, yep, yeah, hey, hey, got something in my pocket for you. Um, <laughs> and uh, I went home uh, for Christmas, and I was like, there's no way in hell I'm going back there. Uh, so as soon as Christmas was over, I joined the military. <laughs> do you think do you think wow. he was like actually suspicious of you doing witchcraft, or was it just like I need to get rid of this guy, and this is how I'm going to justify it? No, he was you know he he was trying you know he was just trying to make the point that you know uh, at, at Word of Life or in all these fundamentalist circles, it's it's the person that asks the questions like, hey, wait, wait, why do we do this? Or wait, wait, why do we think this? You know, I say in one of my books that they they kind of treat it like it's a contagious disease and that it, everybody panics i mean I, and i wrote this obviously way pre-covid but it's kind of like oh my gosh you know get a mask on this guy or this shit's gonna spread um and so he was much more trying to make the point that you know biblically speaking my rebellion was no different than you know sacrificing a goat to lucifer <laughs> just an ideological contagion yeah, for sure. And I mean, I wasn't even that smart then. I was just like asking questions and pushing back against stupid rules. And uh, like, they what's had some the good point rules. of this? Oh my goodness. I remember oh. when my wife was there, people could like, you can't hold hands. So they would like hold different ends of the same stick that they found on the ground outside their door. That's funny. So no, that's really the kind of shit that we would do. Um, yeah. No, you're not allowed to touch. If you're engaged, you can hold hands. If you're married, you can kiss. Um, but you can't even get engaged without the dean's permission. Like they have to like bless and approve everything. Wow. Um, you know, and um, no, like yeah, no touching. And we had famously a third party rule that guys and gals cannot leave campus without a third party because clearly, if you're heading to the post office, you might stop off for some sex on the way. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, it's a. Uh, <laughs> It's kind of funny because in their attempts to um, to to stop us from doing things, they certainly put a whole bunch of stuff in my head. 
Uh, yeah. Because <laughs> I hadn't thought about half the stuff that they were worried I was going to do. Well, um, our, uh, one of our, this comes up a few times, uh, so we'll bring it up again. Uh, we've brought up the uh, the book, as a Preparing for Adolescence by Dr. Dobson a good few times. I don't know if you're familiar <laughs> with that one, but yeah. he, he has this part in the book where he talks about when you're going through puberty, like you're going to notice women, like girls, and you're going to think their bodies are attractive and you might even find their feet attractive. And we're just Hilarious. like, yeah. yeah. And you're like, <laughs> okay, I, that's, he's definitely single-handedly responsible for putting the, uh, the concept of foot fetishism into a boys. <laughs> definitely taught me what masturbation was. Really? <laughs> I just wish there was better pictures, you know? Yeah. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> See, I caught myself. I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny. But oh no. man. So you after so you left. I mean, where to life? And you, how long were you in the military for? I was in the military for ten years. Oh wow! And was like wow. was theology, Christianity, was all that something that was like part of your life during that time, or did you kind of like drift into it afterwards? Well, I would say, so it was an interesting time, um, you know, during those years in the military, I didn't really go to church, but it wasn't so much that I was like, yeah, I'm done with church, I'm deconstructing, or it wasn't anything like that. It was more than just, you know, I was in the military for seven of the 10 years I was overseas, um, and, you know, with, you know, limited options as far as, you know, churches go. Um, you know, I think when I left Word of Life, I I knew that there was just, you know, something rotten about right-wing Christianity. But the thing is, oftentimes we we leave these circles. We we say, geez, this, this smells rotten. I can't stand it. I'm done with it. But we don't yet have the conscious awareness that we have taken taken all of like those patterns of thinking with us. Um, and even still so much of the theology with us. So even though I, you know, at that point I had kind of a bad, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, taste in my mouth for conservative Christianity, I was still very conservative. I still thought, you know, in so many ways, you know, um, you know, in some of the you know thought patterns and, um, you know, just didn't have the conscious awareness of it. So it was, it was quite a long time after that, you know, it was a few years after, after the military that I started my deconstruction. Okay. So what what sparked seminary for you then? Because you is that yeah, what was yeah. the catalyst for that then? Well, you know, even I mean, even with that experience, there's just for me, there's always been something about the person of Jesus that I just can't get enough of. That it's always fascinated me. Um, he's always seemed amazing to me. Um, every, you know, everything about Jesus, I've I've just been totally in love with it. Um, and you know, that never went away. Um, and, um, so I, uh, you know, I loved, you know, I loved church. I loved, you know, trying to teach Jesus. I loved all of that stuff. I loved preaching and, and speaking. Um, you know, I've often told people that, you know, um, if there's any decent skills that I have that have helped me be successful, it wasn't, you know, 10 years in seminary. It was at my senior year in high school, I took theater and public speaking. Um, you know, because there are plenty of other people, um, that have all the same credentials I have, you know, but, so I was great, really grateful for those experiences. Um, but yeah, I, um, I just, I really wanted to serve the church. I didn't know what I wanted to do yet. There, I knew there was something about being a pastor that I both loved and hated, um, you know, or, or feared maybe, um, I think it's probably a fear of rejection preemptively, hmm. um, but um, I don't know. I just I love Jesus. I, I love what it was all about. And um, so, you know, just made the, you know, decided to go on to seminary. 
Yeah. Did your I, uh, did your like spellcraft suffer during that period, or did you balance I, it in seminary? Seminary was a t- yeah. The, the the difference between Bible school and seminary is just night and day. Um, <laughs> however, so the funny thing is though, when I first got to Gordon Conwell, um, I did I did two master degrees at Gordon Conwell, a master's in theology and master's in intercultural studies, and then I went on to Fuller and did my PhD at Fuller, my doctor of intercultural studies. Um, but so when I first got to um, Gordon Conwell, I remember going for um, you know kind of the the campus visit for prospective students, um, and I was actually still far more of the old pattern of thinking because um, you know uh, the acting president at the time was a man named Haddon Robinson. And um, half the reason why I wanted to go was to learn to preach from Haddon Robinson. You know, he was considered you know one of the great preachers of the 20th century. Um, and um, but he mentioned in his speech, you know, that night that there were over a hundred denominations represented. And I was like, how the hell can there be a hundred denominations here? How can you teach the truth and have that much diversity? Like, what the hell is going on here? So I was actually like, man, I I was skeptical going into it um, because, you know, the only thing I knew up to that point coming out of conservative Christianity and fundamentalism was that you go to Bible school to memorize the answers. You know, I, I was not prepared to actually get a theological education. Um, to wrestle with theology, to be formally trained in Greek and Bible translation. I, I wasn't ready for any of the stuff that comes with that. Um, and that's what really blew my mind. Yeah, we, um, so Casey and I both went to Liberty University, which is, that's where we met. But okay. uh, I remember, so I got a Bible degree at Liberty. And of course, even a Bible degree at that point, um, probably not much different than Bible school where they say, you know, mm-hmm. He, they just teach you what the right answers are, right. like what they think the right answers are. And then seminary is uh, still the same thing for them there. They just, it's, it's still like mm-hmm. it's Southern Baptist. It's like you, you go there to learn. And it's, I mean, it's interesting because like, I've, I mean, I know plenty of people who went to it. I know plenty of people who went to, you know, other conservative seminaries or other, even then people who went on to liberal seminaries. And it really is, it's hard to work around it. You know, there is just a line of thinking that says, like these these conservative schools, theologically speaking, like Liberty, where it's like if you go to seminary and you and you're still just being told, it they nuance it a bit, right? Because it's not just right. like these are the right answers. <laughs> now write a paper saying the exact same things mm-hmm. we want you to. They give you some wiggle room, um, but you got to ask the questions the right way. And at the end of the day, if you're not walking away thinking within a certain parameter like that, like then it, it does, it is a cause for concern, right? So you don't mm-hmm. have a lot of people walking out of Liberty University Seminary publicly speaking about how they're uh, accepting of the LGBTQ community sure. or anything like that, right? Mm-hmm. And I always find that interesting because seminary was like what I thought about going, you know, it was on mm-hmm. getting a Bible degree. What else are you supposed to do at that point? Sure. And it was like having that idea of just kind of continuing to be told for the next four years, what the truth is and not getting a lot of wiggle room there was always mm-hmm. interesting to me. Yeah, no, um, I would have, you know, on one hand, I would have hated that. On the other hand, I may have thrived and my life probably would be a lot better than it is perhaps because, um, you know, it all started to fall apart back then in some ways or fall together, you know, maybe to reframe. Um, but yeah, I mean, even though Gordon Conwell was a conservative seminary, 
um, there was totally that freedom. I mean, one of the best grades on a paper I got, the entire paper I wrote, like rebutting the professor, um, you know, but like, he's like, no, this is well done, well reasoned, you know, well articulated, researched. And so, you know, they appreciated it. Um, if you had like, you know, solid academic research and, and uh, to back up what you're trying to say. Um, but I would, you know, and but I did start deconstructing there um, at at uh, Gordon Conwell, and I think the first big thing for me was it was within like the first week or two of seminary. You know, all of a sudden I'm sitting in class, and and it was either a professor or a student, or yeah, I think it was a professor, like made a joke about like the rapture, and everyone laughed as if like people who believed in it were idiots. And I was like, wait a minute, like what? Wait, <laughs> huh? I, I was like, I. I didn't know there was another option. How can you be a Christian and not believe in the rapture? Um, and so, you know, started digging in there, you know, and finding out that it's not part of historic Orthodox Christianity yeah. or in the Bible. Um, in that, you know, the first Christians would, you know, would think we were nuts about that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, they, you know, I think conservatism or fundamentalism's fear is that, you know, well, we don't want we don't, don't want kids to think our faith is like a house of cards um, where if something unravels, it all does. But with the way that they, they try to force us to hold it together, it's almost as if they create a house of cards where they don't need to. Um, you know, you have like Ken Ham, like, well, if yeah. this is not true, then what the hell else is not true? Um, it must all be false, you know, where, man, I think that there's room to like look at this card and be like, you know what? This card is beautiful and authentic. And you know what? This one this one was put in here by some jackass in the 1800s from England. And we just, it's, you know, for us, we just kind of think it's always been there. So let's go ahead and take that one out. Yeah. Um, you know, but, it, you know, I just realized, though, I mean, within my first semester at seminary, I was like, holy smokes. Half the tough stuff that I was taught as a kid um, is either not completely true or it is something that is just our opinion where there are other like very reasonable, viable, biblical alternative views, um, which I was never presented, you know, never told. Um, I mean, we're taught that people who, you know, prayed in tongues were possessed by demons. Um, and, you know, that all of a sudden when like, you know, I have friends who are charismatic, I'm like, man, like these people love Jesus. Like, huh? Um, so I just realized that everything was up for questioning. Um, the very thing that they were afraid of, like they created in me. Um, and, um, you know, long story short, you know, I got to the end of my first degree, my theology degree. And I just kind of said to myself, you know, I, I'm graduating, but I, I don't know if I know what I believe anymore. But what I do know is that I am still as interested in Jesus as I was on, you know, day one uh, as, as a little kid first hearing about him. Um, so I just decided to kind of start my faith all over again and to like literally like build it on Jesus, which, you know, it's kind of sad that that has to be some kind of novel idea. <laughs> right. It's so funny. He says some inconvenient things, you know, like uh, sell all your stuff and, you know, mm -hmm. give it to the poor. And it just doesn't really jive with, uh, you know, the traditional uh, fundamentalist Christianity. Oh my gosh, man, if I could like summarize like what it was like after I got back after 10 years of like seminary, it would be like, well, boy, we're so proud of you. You went, you did 10 years, jeez. 
get up there and preach. Tell us what's the most interesting thing you learned about the Bible in 10 years. I'd be like, well, I'm just was really taken back by how like Jesus was just uh, so filled with compassion for people and taught us to welcome the immigrant and to care for the poor and to, you know, this and that. And uh, then they'd be like, you scripture twisting socialist, get the hell out of here. You know, you'll never understand the Bible because uh, the Holy Spirit's not interpreting and teaching you, you know. So it's like, you know what? I'm done with you guys. Um, oh, my God. That's such a loaded thing that I you're triggering us. No, uh, <laughs> like th- that idea that, that that's so fun. I hadn't even thought about that in a little while, to be honest, is like the idea like that. It's like the whole, I remember hearing that a lot now. It's coming all back to me that, that it's the Holy Spirit that interprets mm-hmm. scripture as you read it. And that a particular evangelical thing is that, um, you know, with that, co- that, that works really well with giving everybody the ability to, to read the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. Um, evangelical criticism of other denominations is that the people don't read the Bible. And I don't know if that's entirely true, but they don't put as much, well, I would definitely say they don't put as much stock in their ability to understand it appropriately. And what I'm, <coughs> what I've learned a lot about is like, I, the, the, that evangelical narrative is, um, once that's instilled in you, just, I mean, it, I guess it, sh- I shouldn't say it's necessarily just that, but it, like all narratives, if you're, if you have one that's really, like that's instilled in you and it's very hardlined. You can't read anything mm. in the Bible without extrapolating that, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, I once wrote a post, you know, called Five Things You're Reading When You're Reading the Bible. Um, just because there are so many different things that we read into it. Um, you know, you have just a cultural, you know, context that is just so significant. I mean, how can you read a historical document, um, you know, that is, you know, talking about, you know, first century Israel without actually understanding first century, you know, Israel. Um, You know, how do you read, you know, about the Bronze Age nomads if you don't understand Bronze Age goat herders? You know, like, just how? Um, You know, but then there are other, like, you know, contexts, you know, things that we read. And I think a great example is hell itself. Um, You know, we, in English, we read the word hell and we conjure in our minds what we've been told hell is. And so we repeatedly read that into the Bible. Um, No one ever tells you that there are three different words. And just because English happens to suck in some ways, we render them all as hell instead of like the three different specific things that it's talking about, which is not hell. Um, A word that didn't exist for almost like 400 years later in in the understanding that we have it now. So um, we're constantly reading those things into the Bible without ever knowing it. Um, because it's, it's, and that's, I mean, but that's the way it is with language. Um, you know, we would do that with other documents, other texts too. And that's why, um, you know, historical, um, you know, scholarship is an important part of that process. Yeah. I, I really like, I would say only like recently after I, I left the faith and all of that, only, only like recently did I even know that there was like large groups of people that, didn't believe that hell was a physical place Mm -hmm. or that, you know, uh, when you brought up a second ago, um, there's just so many things that like, I I think that was uh, other denominations like baffled us Mm -hmm. because we just uh, like couldn't understand how someone could read 
what we were reading and come out with a different interpretation. Sure. And it was always like kind of disturbing, like, wow, it's just, you know, it's people being misled. That was yeah. what ev explained mm -hmm. every denomination, you know? Exactly. Exactly. I know. And, um, <clears throat> No, that was kind of the way I was baffled too. anybody that didn't, didn't uh, think like us. Um, but yeah, I, I think the hell issue is a, just a great example where it's almost, almost like I saw it in one way. And then all of a sudden I actually look at the book itself and like there's common sense things that all of a sudden stand out to me, like, you know, beyond just the, the linguistics part of it, you know, it's for example, you know, in, in our version of Christianity we grew up in, of course, it's like, Hey, the whole narrative boils down to you are a sinner, you know, no such thing as a good person. You know, if you were dying today and given justice, where would you go? Um, so we have this whole narrative about hell and the necessity of Jesus on the cross. And then, so I look at the Bible and I'm like, so wait a minute, if that is like the central theme, why is it not discussed at all in the Old Testament at, at all? Like, like, why did God wait so long to tell us about it if, if this is the case? And then even in the New Testament, of course, when you look at like the early church, the early church, you look at the book of Acts, they don't go around like preaching hell. They do come around, go around preaching repentance, being returned to God. They do, they do preach that, that there will be a judgment from God. But they don't go. They don't mention hell at all in this early evangelicalism, um, and so I was like, "Good heavens! How did we get this entire thing, uh, this entire core theology, when it is not that way? When you look at the actual book itself." Yeah, and it almost required us to walk through the world with such a suspicion of everybody else who came to a different conclusion. Mm -hmm. And I think I still struggle with that even to this day. Is like when I see people thinking differently than me. Like, I know that's just a huge, there's part of that's just a human thing. There is a that human aspect of us where we, where people think differently and you're like, how can I get them to think like me? Like, of course that's part of uh, human nature, but I think there was definitely an increase because the stakes were so high given the whole hell thing that like you were so confident that you, you were reading it right and that you understood it so properly. And that, I mean, just the, the slightest misstep, you know, and they wouldn't say it like that. They'd be like, well, only God knows somebody's heart. But they, I mean, they put so much emphasis on like a few, mm -hmm. a small handful of things that like the slightest misstep from those, even though God was the only one who knew their hearts, you were still worried about their soul. And <laughs> Oh, for sure. That was, that's what made me a big dick in college. I'm surprised I mm -hmm. had friends, but I remember arguing nonstop. I'll never forget an argument I had with one friend outside. We were at a show. Like, shut the fuck up, Sam Shipman. We're at a show for <laughs> entertainment, and you can't stop getting into theological arguments with people. Yeah. And it had to do with missions. It had to do with mm -hmm. um, a friend of mine said something to the effect of like, I just can't really buy into the idea that if people live somewhere in a place where they've never heard any of these things, that a God would send them to hell. Right. And boy, did I have the right Liberty University answer for him. And I, mm -hmm. for the heavens I, declare the glory of the Lord and, and yeah. no man is without excuse. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I blamed us. I put yeah. that burden on the on every single person who wasn't jumping on a plane and mm -hmm. going over to the tell. And that's, I mean, what was it? John Chow. That's how you get people like John Chow. What I always found interesting about that, though, is that they would cite Romans as saying, well, nature declares there's a God there and that's enough to judge you to hell. But like if you respond in the best way you can 
that's not enough to like get you to not go to hell. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It's like enough to condemn, but not enough to save. Like, no, the saving can only be with like explicit knowledge. And, you know, I think, you know, Rob Bell famously asked, you know, what if the missionary gets a flat tire? <laughs> yeah. So. I forgot about that. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know, Rob definitely got me in a lot of trouble back then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> stuff. Yeah. So. He got a lot of us into trouble. That's funny. He's a gay man. So, did you ended up doing? You were a pastor for a little while, right? Post seminary. Yeah. Well, I was part of a church plant where I was a teaching elder. Um, so we we called it teaching elder. Okay. Um, so I was, um, you know, didn't didn't last very long. Um, in that, <clears throat> obviously, I started blogging and ruined my life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I mean, I loved it. I mean, we had, you know, I was married, you know, a daughter, you know, tight group of friends. Um, you know, small group. It was just really, really finally like the community that we had longed for, um, for so many years. Um, but then, gosh, long story short, I mean, there was one day where it just all imploded. And it was largely over an interview that I did on Huffington Post Live. It was a TV show on, uh, it was on pro-life hypocrisy talking about, you know, uh, the death penalty um, in Texas at that time, they were, you know, hitting some record numbers. And, and um, you know, I'd written a lot about pro-life hypocrisy. And uh, man, things really went south. I mean, there was literally a Sunday where a woman stood up and was yelling and wagging her finger about, he said Christians should support a higher minimal wage. And it was, she was so mad. It was like you would have wow. thought that like I had said Jesus had a daddy and his name was Frank, um, you know, but uh, it, I'm like, really? Um, you know, then the other thing was, you know, that's it, it was also when I was really, truly encountering and starting over with Jesus and uh, becoming passionate about nonviolence when I realized um, that this is so very much um, what Jesus taught. And, uh, you know, nice gun, Casey, by the way, Shane and I would love <laughs> to turn that into a garden tool. We just talked to Shane. Not that one. <laughs> Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. No, we love doing that stuff. I, I got a forge out back and, and an anvil, and um, I actually get um, you know get a bunch of guns from the state of Maine after they've been confiscated in crimes, and still have the uh, still have the uh, evidence tags on them. And you know, I kind of pray over them before pounding them to. Uh, um, but nonetheless, so but on that topic though, um, I had suggested I didn't did we didn't even get to the point where we made a policy. We had suggested that maybe some of the people should leave their guns in the car instead of bringing them into worship. Ooh, um, controversial. <laughs> that was oh yeah 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 no 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 man that one was controversial. That was literally met with oh yeah I'll take my gun and my money and I'll go to a different church that wants both of us. Um, so just treating you like they're a McDonald's. That was rude to them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was just so discouraging though, in that, I mean, I don't know before, you know, this is a community that kind of sent me off to seminary back then is be like, Hey, look at this guy. He went to Bible school. Listen to him preach. Uh, wow. It's so great. It's like, here I go to seminary, get a PhD. And it's like, look, this is the dumbest guy you're ever going to meet. You know, um, <laughs> you know, it's just, if, what they wanted was you to come back with all just to memorize all the answers they already had and be able to say them in a way that made them feel excited. You know, they didn't mean actually come back and like teach the Bible and teach Jesus. Um, Cause there just wasn't room for Jesus. 
So, uh, so no, the people up and left and took their money with them, and the church kind of fell apart. Um, and then um, we ho- uh, hid out for a couple of years with Congolese refugees, um, which was so awesome. Um, we just um, we had found out that there was a, a nice Congolese refugee community here. This is rural Maine. Um, and really? there was, yeah, there's article in the paper about how poorly they were being treated. And so, um, <clears throat> decided to go, uh, to worship one day and, you know, introduce myself to the pastor and po- apologize for how they'd been, uh, treated by so many in our community and, um, really, really super nice guy and asked us to keep coming back. And, and so we ended up just hanging out with the refugees and, you know, worshiping in Lagala and, uh, uh, which was really incredible. Um, but then that kind of came to an end in that um, there's at one point the pa- the pastor had come to me. He's like, listen, we're refugees. We're all broke. I need to go out of town for a couple of months to make some money for rent and heat and all that stuff. Uh, you know, will you kind of, you know, lead things and take over things while I'm gone? So listen, I'm not comfortable being the one, you know, the one white guy as the leader of a refugee community. I said, but here's what I'll do. I know you got to go. You know, I'm like, I will help you raise up. Um, I, I help you train um, a pastor from your own community, um, and and I'll help you with that process. I will help you with the transition. Um, you know, I'll do whatever it takes. You know, I just I I cannot for any long period of time be like the one guy in charge. It has to be with the intention that you guys are doing it all yourself. Um, and so he's like, oh, that sounds like a great idea. He's like, uh, they were meeting in the basement of a local church here in Maine called grace church by you know uh, which is ironic in the end um and uh so uh, i had never met you know anybody from that church before the pastor or anything like that because we just met in the basement you know later on in the afternoon on sundays and uh so he uh he's like well i need to introduce you to the pastor who owns the building so he knows what's happening while i'm gone and uh we sat down to breakfast and uh you know shook the guy's hand and the guy, you know, started putting cream in his coffee. He looked at me. He said, Benjamin L. Corey, I know who you are. I need you to tell me what you think about homosexuality. Oh, my God. I'm like, for the love of God. Um, <laughs> you really yeah. do have all the wrong answers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I tried to, you know, just explain, like, you know, the theological tension and nuance. At that time, I hadn't even, you know, crossed over into fully affirming yet. I was still, you know, very much on my journey. Uh, but at the same time, I couldn't figure out why I was even worried about it. This was Congolese community, like very conservative. You know, like if you're worried that I'm going to influence them on that, there's that's probably not <laughs> happening. Um, you know, but I didn't want, you know, I, I wanted to serve the refugee community, even though I didn't share all of you know, their theological beliefs. I just really wanted to support the refugees. Um, But um, he, uh, you know, you know, we tried to have a conversation and uh, basically he said, you know, you know, uh, I don't think that the elders would like someone being in our church who makes their living tearing down the bride of Christ. He's like, that's, and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I'm like, I'm not tearing her down. She just behaves poorly in public. <laughs> um, you know, it's like, and so uh, he just said, you know, I would really hate to have to like tell the refugees they can't use our building anymore because you're worshiping. Oh my God. That's super fucked up. They leveraged that against you. So That's fucked awful. up. And those were like his exact words. Um, and yeah, his name was Dave and he was an asshole and um, <laughs> I don't mind saying his name because, you know, if they 
you know, didn't want to be in the stories. They should have behaved differently when the story was being written. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I, I like that mentality. You know, this guy, you know, it was just, it was stunning. And so here I was, I was so screwed because I, I just had this heart for the refugee community. And I, the last thing I wanted was to like, just ghost them after like they had, you know, welcomed me in and made my family like part of their community. And, but now I was in the position where I had to, I had to leave the, the community in order to protect them. Because, you know, if, if, you know, rule number one is do no harm, I didn't want to risk doing harm to them by worshiping with them as fucked up as it was, you know? Um, so, uh, that was the last time that I, you know, attended any church, you know, I mean, other than you know, a random service, you know, here or there. Um, you know, but, uh, yeah, that was, that was kind of one of the last blows for me. Um, wow. at what, least here in this area. So about what year, okay. So just to get a pieces together a little bit, um, when your when your church imploded about what year was that like the church that uh, you had built up that would have been right when i started blogging uh okay so right around 2015 okay um and um or tw- maybe 2014 actually and so probably 2015 2016 was the time period when i was uh with the refugees um and then after that um you know it was just toast yeah so but you continued to blog and you were you were writing books at that time yeah, uh, yep. I was continuing to blog. Uh, I just had kind of so much to say from seminary and this and that. Um, and, um, you know, I had my last book, Unafraid, that came out in 2017, uh, Moving Beyond Fear-Based Faith. Uh, okay. And then in the last couple of years since then, um, I've kind of, you know, in hindsight, taken a sabbatical that I'm anxious to end. Um, you know, I just had gone through a divorce, uh, which was really difficult, oh. you know, just, um, you know, a lot of, yeah, man, a lot of pressure on life and a lot of, uh, difficulty and loss. Um, yeah, I didn't know that. Especially loss of community. Um, and so, you know, as you know, unafraid came out, you know, just kind of going through a divorce and struggle with depression, um, and, uh, things like that. But, um, I've been, uh, gosh, I've, since January, I've been doing this new depression treatment called Supravido. It's actually ketamine, the new nasal spray they do for depression. No way. Um, yeah. So they came out, it's, um, this, almost this new angle of the role of psychedelics in depression treatment, um, which I am incredibly interested in. Yeah, I've been hearing um, a lot more about that lately. Like, oh, it seems wow. like there's been more trials going on. I know it's still like mm-hmm. psychedelics is still kind of Schedule One in the U.S., aren't they? Or is for that- sure. So the ketamine nasal spray is technically a tranquilizer, but it has some psychedelic, you know, edges to it. Um, and um, you know, it's very limited. You know, uh, where you can get it, you have to do it. You know, in the office, and you know, it takes two hours. You're hooked up to a blood pressure monitor the whole time. Um, you know, but, um, you know, I initially had, you know, a lot of really good, uh, really good effect from that, um, in that, uh, I just, I don't know, there's something about, uh, this psychedelics where you end up going into this place inside of you where you do a lot of the difficult processing and work that you've needed to do and releasing that. Um, and so, you know, that's been incredible about, uh, ketamine. Um, but I'm also incredibly interested in, uh, learning to microdose mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is uh, kind of the next thing on my horizon that I'm getting ready to, uh, play around with. 
um, which, of course, inspired by we were talking about that pre-show before we started recording. The, here in my office here in Maine, I have a picture of Doug Forsett on my wall. <laughs> um, and to, so to fill you and Casey and any of you guys out, any folks listening. So uh, I absolutely love The Good Place. Um, yep. They have all four seasons, I think, on Netflix. Um, and so basically The Good Place, you know, starring Kristen Bell and uh, Ted Danson. Uh, the basic premise is somebody, this woman, Ellen Shellstrops, gets into the good place. Within a day, finds out they have her mixed up with another Ellen because she's really a shitty person and shouldn't <laughs> be there. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's everything that happened since then. But in the very first episode, when she first gets to the good place, she's in the Archangel Michael's office and sees this picture. And she says, who's that? He says, that's Doug Forsett. And she said, Who's Doug Forsett? He said, oh, well, Doug's the one that got the closest guess. He said, Doug was a stoner kid that lived back in Calgary back in the 70s. And one night he and his friend Randy got high on mushrooms. And Randy said to him, hey, what do you think happens to us when we die? And he said, you know what? And somehow Randy just launched into this long diatribe where he got like 94% correct. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so this was a picture hanging in, in Michael's office. It says, Doug Forsett. Calgary closest guest 101472. Um, <laughs> and it just reminds me that, you know, I, you know, I love the Bible, love, love Jesus, love theology, but I'm still just doing my best to make my closest guest just like Doug was. Yeah, I love it. I need to get one of those. I need a Doug. Oh, it's a awesome. Doug poster I, love it. my, uh, I do think that I've, like, I think that that the, the psychedelics, stuff is going to be like a whole new frontier of treatment for different things. I agree with you. It really is. There are so many new studies coming out, so many new studies. Um, And, you know, other countries, you know, are already catching on to this. Um, But I think that even a university, I think in Massachusetts was beginning um, a program to continue to study it. Um, And so, no, the role of psychedelics in treating depression is has been a huge untapped resource and we are finally um beginning to to understand some things um i've been you know lately just you know soaking in any information you know in any study i can on psilocybin you know m- you know yeah. magic mushrooms um and i mean gosh what they are finding you know in those smaller doses the micro doses um that has all of the impacts um that some of other these things like ketamine have on depression um, and for people who have, you know, what's called drug resistant depression, you know, which is technically what I've had because it just doesn't respond to, you know, SSRIs or any of the other kind of medications. Um, and these kind of things can be incredibly helpful because you know, we have so many. I was just, you know, I had a treatment this morning and I was telling the nurse practitioner that administers it. I said, you know, I just feel like in our culture, in our language, we have too limited of a way to describe depression. We just have that one word. I'm like, well, but what, what if I, what if it's not just that? What if it's that I have a lot of reasons to be sad? <laughs> you know, what, you know, what if it's, I have a lot of grief, you know, a lot of mm-hmm. losses that I've had faced. Um, and those are like real reasons that you can't just medicate, you know, yes, a medicine can help with some symptoms, no medicine is going to ease the pain of like being banished from my community and losing all of my friends and my marriage falling apart. There's, there's, there's no medicine for that. 
Um, and um, what I love about psychedelics, um, and I was never a recreational drug user, so this is, you know, my experimenting um, for depression has been my first, you know, experience with any of this. Um, what I really love about it is that, uh, like, you know, just like this morning, you know, I, I took my nasal spray and it was just a mini kind of two hour trip where you just almost go inside your mind and there's this feeling of contentment and then you start to process. And I was just kind of flooded with thoughts and feelings today. Like, you know what? It's going to be okay. Like you, you can overcome all these challenges. Like you're going to heal. It's going to be okay. And so it wasn't even so much the medicine. It's the mental process that you go through on some of these psychedelics that really, I think promotes healing. Um, So I'm so excited, you know, for the future of them. And um, I'm excited to, um, to do some experimenting with microdosing mushrooms here very soon. That's yeah. good. That one's like really interests me too. Cause I mean, there's like, I never really had like a party phase, you know, and like the, the little bit of like goofing around we've done with edibles and things mm-hmm. like that. Like one of the, one of the coolest things about it that people don't really talk about that much is like, I feel like it's like thought pattern interruption. Yeah. It's like, there's so many things that you do that you never even consider another way of looking at it, you know, yeah. simple things, even, you know, like, uh, like menial tasks, you know, you, you have those, those thoughts that interrupt the pattern. And all of a sudden you realize like, mm-hmm. Oh man, like I, I never looked at it that way. This is so much easier. This is more efficient. And I feel mm-hmm. like, um, weed in particular, but like edibles, especially, mm-hmm. I, I feel like you just have these unique thoughts that you just don't have mm-hmm. with, you know, when you're sober. And and that's where I feel like microdosing could be really cool because it's like, it's not a debilitating effect, you know, right. it's just that you're, you're, it's like you're changing the lenses out in your glasses almost. For sure. You know? For sure. Um, and I, yeah, that's where I think, you know, microdosing, you know, could be great. I also think that there is value in like a trip itself, you know, beyond, you know, microdosing. Cause I mean that again, that's what I had kind of with the ketamine this morning. Um, but uh, so with the ketamine though, the nasal spray, um, it's technically esketamine for, for the depression, but, um, you know, what they have found in some of the initial studies is that even if some people don't experience like a real shift in their mood, they do experience a disruption of thought patterns. And what I can say hands down is 100% true. And I was as shocked as anyone that it happened um, was I used, I used to think about killing myself five times a day. There, I mean, no joke. There'd be days where I'd be like, all right, you know, let's have our coffee. At the end of the day, I'm Today will have been a good day if I only think about hanging myself five times or less. And like some, I had to get through some days judging it like that. Well, Oof. after my very first dose of um, esketamine, um, it was like it shut the part of my brain off that wanted to kill myself. Um, and I, since then, it's been several months. I don't think I've had more than a brief fleeting thought. And it, it just, it totally totally shut off that whole thought pattern that I used to have around it. And um, there are a lot of other people who are experiencing the same thing, uh, really thankfully. Um, so if nothing else, I'm deeply grateful that, that this treatment like shut that part of my brain off. So, wow, man, that's wild. First of all, that's a, I know, but thanks for sharing that. That's a, I know that's a hard thing for a lot of people to talk about. And I think just you sharing that is really beneficial to people who might be struggling with the same types of things. I it's man, I've listened. I remember once listening to a 
the first time that I ever heard of microdosing, it was a, it was a, it was a woman who had a kind of a similar story of like constant thought of suicide. And, you know, with, with microdosing, you don't even hit that trip. Like you're sure, talking right. like you hit, it's like, so it was like day one, it's like nothing day two, it's nothing. And it's just, but after it starts like kind of taking effect, she's like, I realized something changed the day that I looked out my window and saw a tree that I've seen every single day and never thought about. And I looked out and I thought, God, that tree is really beautiful. Yeah. And she's like, I hadn't felt that way about anything in 10 years. And mm-hmm. it was like, well, that was like, that's like moving. And so hearing mm-hmm. like the experience and the experiences that people have with things like with, with micro dosing and it's, it's great. I, so like, uh, and it's, it's just wonderful to hear that people are starting to be able to do studies on it. I mean, it's been, mm-hmm. it's, you've been un, unable to study it for so long and it, especially in mass. Like, I, I mean, how many people in this country are microdosing and you can't even group them all together for a study because they can't let you know. They have to keep it <laughs> right. a secret in some way. For sure. I mean, we can thank kind of the 1980s war on drugs for like these ridiculous <laughs> like blanket policies that kind of, you know, permanently shut off, you know, looking at certain things um, and stigmatized um, you know, certain classes, uh, or certain, you know, drugs or plants, um, to the point where, no, we don't want to consider that because, well, it's already, it's, it's already been classified as something. And so just this bad. And, um, for me, I think where I got interested in, in microdosing was like, well, all things considered, I would prefer something natural versus synthetic, you know? And so the ketamine is, you know, synthetic. I prefer something, you know, that Jesus made, um, you know, thank you for magic mushrooms and weed. Um, and, but, um, no, but much like you said in that story, um, you know, the, the ketamine kind of stopped, interrupted my thought pattern. And I will say that the one time that I did, um, try mushrooms the very next morning was the first morning I woke up and the, and the first thoughts on my mind were just positive and optimistic. I, I remember telling myself like, Whoa, this is what this feels. I just, I just woke up feeling like not sad, you know, woke up feeling not depressed. And, uh, you know, for people that have, you know, um, real, you know, deep depression, it's that feeling when you first open your eyes in the morning that you're greeted with. And it's just so overwhelming because it's there from the beginning. And that, that one day after I first tried mushrooms for just to not have that heaviness there was the most amazing thing in the world. Um, but yeah, with all the stigma, I was, you know, slow to try different things. Um, but actually just, uh, this past Sunday, uh, was, uh, the 28th anniversary of when my grandfather died by a completed suicide, um, when I was 17 years old. Um, and so knowing that, um, you know, if you've had a completed suicide in the family, uh, that, you know, your risk is, you know, doubled essentially, um, I knew that, you know, for me, I just, I was going to leave no stone unturned. Um, didn't, didn't care, you know, how much it costs or what I had to do to like get a certain treatment. Didn't care if it's stigmatized, didn't care if, you know, whatever, um, that, you know, I was going to, you know, fight this with everything in me. And, um, I, I do start to, I'm starting to feel glimpses of the old me come back and, uh, I just miss life. I, I miss yeah. I miss engaging with my readers. I miss I miss living. I miss being happy. And I am just ready to kind of step back into things. I mean, this the first interview I've done in two years, actually. So, <laughs> wow, man, that is 
That's such, that's wild. I, it's funny when you like, you know, obviously it's, I had no, I mean, as someone who had been following your work for a number of years, I was like, I obviously noticing the lapse in blog posts. Sure. It's like, Oh, once every, it's like they maybe six months and then yeah, it had so it's like, and then, yeah, I mean, that's the kind of, you have no, I you had no idea what's going on with people. So that's, yeah. um, that's, no, that's the wild part, to hear, man. The part of it is you kind of become overwhelmed, like shame, embarrassment. It's like, geez, I haven't said anything in six months. Like, don't, you know, like, you know, why, why now, you know? And, um, it's like, geez, I kind of dropped the ball in my own life. And like in public view of thousands and thousands of people. <laughs> um, so there's like no way to just like discreetly step back in and be like, you know, nothing ever happened, you know? So. Yeah. Do you plan on, um, I mean, I do you plan on writing about this and your experiences and stuff like that. Is Definitely. That- I'm, I'm so yeah. anxious to get back to writing. Um, you know, it, it's, it's such a difficult uh, career and job as in that, being being somebody who who creates it's it comes from a certain energy inside of you and so when you battle in depression or when the stars aren't aligned it's not like you can't just show up to work and create because you have to um you know you you create because like you have no other you create because like i have no choice but to not let this thing be born that's inside of me you know Mm -hmm. um and and so i think that really compounded my grief and depression um, because it's like, okay, great. All right. I'm depressed, you know, you know, gone through a divorce. Uh, you know, my, you know, you know, my career's kind of, you know, been on pause, you know, and it just, you know, made it all the harder to create and to kind of step back into life. Um, but, um, I'm desperately wanting to, um, and, um, you know, I really want to do some more videos again. I guess you younger kids use something called TikTok. They say, uh. God, I can't, I have not been able to like bring myself to get into it as we're trying to like, I don't know, you know, we're trying, we hit different social platforms, media platforms. And I'm like, how am I supposed to just hold a video, like a camera up in front of my face and just say stuff and have anyone give a shit? I can't like the idea of doing that on a, on the fly and trying to use TikTok is really, I'm struggling with that mm-hmm. one too, man. So not for sure. <laughs> you're not alone. Yeah. Maybe you should start out with some of the dances, you know, the, yeah, the like the white girl dances where they do a you know their elbows a lot, right? Um, so ben, while we're talking about creating and how things are few and far between, I do want to bring up the piece that you wrote uh, that you wrote. Uh, it's like a year ago, but and then you made updates to it last June, and it was called for our listeners. And I'm gonna I want to put this in our show notes because I think this is just one of the most I, I'm obsessed with it. I think it's one of the <laughs> funnest pieces I've ever read on the subject of end times to circle back to the start of the conversation here, where you wrote a, a piece called could American evangelicals spot the antichrist. Here are the biblical predictions. And you take 30, I think it was 35, 34, 35 of That's like lot, the, yeah. the big end times passages and um, spin them in a way that redirects the antichrist onto their Lord and savior, Donald Trump. So I was, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, it, that was, man, that, that was probably one of my favorite pieces that I've ever produced as well. And, you know, it started out, you know, totally different. And then I just kind of woke up one day and I was like, ha ha, wouldn't it be funny if I wrote a piece and, you know, with a couple of characteristics of the Antichrist and made it look like Donald Trump. And I was like, ha ha, okay, let's, you know, you know, let's do this. 
And so I kind of sat down. And I was like, well, all right, let me read up on, on all the Antichrist passages that evangelicals you know, would say point to the Antichrist. And I started just reading up on them. And then I'm like, well, this post isn't being written today. This is this is going to take more research. And, you know, I mean, I ended up spending a month on that one blog post yeah. researching it. Um, it was, you know, it was not hastily thrown together or, or even that much spin in that this became a case where I freaked myself out. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it would be like, if you made a horror movie and like you were there when it was all filmed, but you still can't sleep at night because of the thing you made yourself. Um, but no, I mean, I just started reading and, and looking at it just as a narrative, you know, as they, 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 you know, they, they describe this character in narrative fashion. I was just stunned and I couldn't even believe it. I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. Okay, the Antichrist will will literally rise to power with fewer followers. He will, you know, he will win through outside collusion, and he will use deceit, you know, to 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 gain, you know, that position. And I was like, okay, and then oh, wait, <laughs> the Antichrist will like do this. Oh, he will uniquely profit off of that position in a way like nobody before him could profit off of it. And then like, you, and then you just start going on and on. And then you start reading in Revelation, you know, you know, you know, and also in Daniel, and it says, "And I heard him speaking great things and things that were greater than his opponents." <laughs> and I'm like, "Oh my goodness!" I'm like, "This is the weirdest shit ever." <laughs> um, and like, I mean, it was just, it, I don't know, it was, it was just astounding. You go through the narrative, and I, all I will say is, I don't believe this stuff, but. If there is an antichrist, he's going to be so dang similar to Trump, that I, because th this this is truly like the article is actually describing like the characteristics of the antichrist. So if it's not Trump, it's somebody who sure as hell looks a whole lot right. like him. It makes to you your think credit, it looks less likely every day that it is in fact Obama. Yeah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because uh, you look. What's also astounding about it is when you're looking at it, and I'm reading it, and I'm like, it's pointing at all the types of characteristics that would make a person, quote unquote, the Antichrist. And I'm like, with with the belief that they're actually talking about something at that time, I'm like, it's kind of nice to know that those traits have always been around mm -hmm. too, right? You're sure. not like this isn't the first time we've experienced something with someone who has this much. Uh, objective right. moral failure and that's another <laughs> one of your points was like the it'll, like the moral failure behind this will be like a debaucherous person who, who lacks character and it's like the, the amount of people who are just like excused that and he played it right because it was like um he accepted jesus christ as his personal lord and savior to get people like franklin graham on board and it was like man he i mean he played his moves right to 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 get that 80 percent that he needed and it fucking worked like it's magic. still astounding though because i've got to tell you even if i had been an evangelical when he came on the scene and even if i had still been a republican i would not have like been okay with that crap i mean i actually just talked to a, a military buddy of mine a few weeks ago that i haven't talked to in, in 10 years and back the last time he had talked to me i was a right-wing conservative he's like man he's like i'll tell you what when trump came president the first thing that came to mind i said there's no way ben's okay with this shit yeah. You know? And I'm like, oh, good. I'm glad, you know, I, I was I was hoping I wasn't, you know, just thinking 
you know, trying to, you know, tell myself, don't worry, you wouldn't have gone along with them. But it was good to know that, like, somebody who knew me didn't think that. Um, but there's just something unique about Never in my wildest dreams did I think the same people at Word of Life who were so concerned that you'd be walking three feet apart so as to not give any appearance of evil, like, and, and where, like, oh, man, like, clearly your repentance wasn't enough, you know, if you were to tell me that one day these guys would not just support somebody, but support them with the enthusiasm, you know, the, I mean, just undying. I, I can't even get the words out because it's still <laughs> so shocking that, that the people who raised me that way would turn to him. Um, and that's one of the ways I connected with, you know, my own piece there on the Antichrist, because where it talks about how that, you know, people of God will be given over and almost start acting like they're delusional. And it says they will hate the truth. And I'm like, man, this is happening right now, folks. And y'all always said it was going to be me and listening to that <laughs> rock music that did it. But no, it was you and Donald Trump. <laughs> it's funny. We've talked about it so many times. But like the, I, I feel like the, the Trump years really showed with absolute clarity like what's most important to to those people, you know, like so many people like that that would say up and down that Christianity and their faith and stuff like that is the most important thing in their life. They're lying. Like, yeah, over and over again, you see them choose, you know, that that political ideology that lines up with the way that they want to live over over their faith, abjectly over things in the Bible. Well, it's funny to me reading your your uh, blog post was. Like there's so many different criteria for the Antichrist and what he does and his characteristics and things like that. I was thinking back on it and I'm like, man, you know, the only ones that we ever really talked about in in depth at church and stuff were, well, he's going to he's going to come on board and like promote unity across the globe. And you know, he's going <laughs> to establish peace mm -hmm. with Israel. It was like all these things that are actually good and yeah. like. Mm -hmm. That was the things that we were worried about. Like anybody who talked too much about world peace and stuff were like, I don't know about that guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, no, you're so right. Uh, no, those were the things that they majored on. And, and some of those are just, you know, weren't even in the narrative. Uh, but no, when you look at it, it's just, um, it, it's, you know, truly amazing. Um, but I mean, I, I just never seen, I'd never seen a president before who was just so clearly fraudulent in his faith. Um, you know, we have had presidents of both parties who I believe, you know, and I served presidents under both parties, you know, in the military, you know, um, and I believe, you know, that those men who served in those positions, whether liberal or conservative, truly loved America. I think, you know, men, you know, like George W. Bush, you know, Jimmy Carter, very sincere and devout Christians, equally so, you know, very, very much Christians. Um, and I just, I never imagined that they would fawn over somebody who was so clearly faking it. You know, this guy does not give a shit about Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the clear aspects of his personality to me is that it was just, it, to, to be able to you have to trick yourself into believing that he cared about Christianity. I mean, you really, it's like, I'm sure there's going to be some people who listen to this that are very bothered by that statement. I just, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around. Like, well, you know, it's one of the things that like, 
like you, Ben, I, I feel like there's a lot of similarities um, in, in, in our connection to, because I'm still part of the, the Christian faith. I still, I have a church, like a faith community, a church that I participate in. And, you know, I, a lot of it, a lot of my ability to maintain a connection to it is because of my interest in Jesus as well, where mm-hmm. it's just like the, the, the truth to power, uh, breaking down all the walls that religion yeah. creates. Like it, there was so many, there's so much about him that I think is beautiful and necessary. And, and, and the people throughout history that I have the most, that you, that you're the most moved by when you read, not that like like your like your Gandhi or your like Martin Luther King Jr. Mm-hmm. when they're talking about like the path to peace the the move forward uh, of course it sounds like sometimes a little silly for a white guy who's only 33 to be talking about Martin Luther King Jr. as though I have any idea what it was like to actually be in his position but like but when you hear his words and his speeches and and like and its connection back to to Jesus like Man, that is that the the power is there. The power is in that 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 belief system. That mm-hmm. I that idea. So if that if to me that's truth, which is what like it's like so like that's what makes the Christ the Christ. I guess is like that. It's communicating that truth that's like comes like deep from within our, our universe in some way. So like when you hear that from anybody at any point, it, like it moves me. And then you hear someone like. Donald Trump start talking mm-hmm. and you're like, what? Like, yeah. that's what you're confusing with Christianity. That's what you're confusing with uh, the character that supposedly moved us to faith. Um, it's definitely saddening. Yeah, no, I mean, it, you know, tree by its fruit and it's just, it's, it's not good fruit. Um, yeah. Um, but no, uh, you're right. There's, you know, I've often said, you know, about Jesus, you know, to my atheist friends, you know, if I, if I found out that Jesus wasn't divine or, or this or that, I'm still going to follow Jesus because it, it, the, the way of Jesus, the way of living is the very best way I know how to live. And so even if I'm wrong about who I believe he is, because I too am still a person of faith and and still you know very much uh, believe in, in, in Jesus and all of that stuff, but even if that stuff were not true— it could be proven untrue. I'm still going to follow him because I, I so believe in the way he lived, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a life of compassion and empathy and service and uh, things like that. So, yeah, I'm on the Jesus train, uh, not the Trump train. Yeah. <laughs> hey, when you were talking about uh, the church that, you know, the group that you had to leave mm-hmm. after the the deal with this, it was Sudanese refugees, right? Uh, Congolese. Congolese. Mm-hmm. Um, you said you were a teaching elder in that church. A teaching elder in the one before that. Sorry. Okay. I, I, was there a was there conflict between you and any of the other elders over some of your more progressive thoughts on things, or were they oh. all kind of like minded? Okay, so it, there's no conflict when I was in the Congolese church. We were just hanging out refugees. They didn't even know who I was, which I loved. Um, but so, but back in my regular church, you know, um, which was before that, uh, was a conflict. Yeah, uh, I mean, it, it wasn't direct conflict. There, I, you could feel the tension, you know, in that uh, one of the other elders owned a um, concealed carry company that um, taught people and helped them get their license to concealed carry weapons. And so, even without saying it, 
like, you know, here I am, like, you know, very publicly, um, you know, leading a, leading a, a charge, you know, online, you know, for thousands of uh, thousands of people, like helping to convert them over to nonviolence in the way of Jesus. Um, you know, I, you could feel the tension in the air, you know, but, you know, with, uh, with an elder that you knew was packing um, and uh, spent his time teaching others to pack. Um, so, yeah, so it was rough. So, um, and I knew that, you know, I, I mean, so the thing, the difficult thing is I was, I didn't want to cause any trouble. I was processing my, you know, my ideas and stuff like that online, but in church, and I was preaching sermons that there's no reason why anybody should have had an issue with them. Like I, it was, I'm not trying to like, you know, blow anybody's mind. You know, I was like straight up preaching Jesus, like totally legitimately real deal Jesus. Um, and, um, and no, and Jesus himself, you know, uh, you know, certainly created some of the tension, um, you know, because they asked me to, you know, preach through Matthew. It's like, okay, you know, you asked for it. Here's what it says. Yeah. Pretty early on, you get to the Sermon on the mountain. That's uncomfortable. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Man. Well, Ben, I, we really appreciate your time, uh, your story. This went in directions I didn't expect it to. I honestly was not expecting to go on to a conversation about microdosing. And like that. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, we thought if, when we were going to have this conversation. So. If there's a next time, let's just talk about drugs. Yeah. I <laughs> no, I, I really appreciate it. And I'm really glad that, um, that the conversations were able to go that way. Because like you said, um, yeah. I, I'm sure that there are plenty of people out there who um, both uh, quietly or not quietly struggle with depression and, um, you know, suicidality and grief and all of that stuff. Um, and so I just wanted to like be really intentional about, you know, what yeah. life has been like um, and be really t- transparent about that um, in that, in hopes that, that others out there will um, do whatever they can do um, to, to try to, to fight those urges and to, to push a path towards healing as well. Um, but no, I really appreciate being on with you guys. It's good to reminisce and talk about things and, um, hopefully we'll, we'll see you guys online here in the future. Yeah. Yeah. We're, I mean, as you're, uh, as things are looking, looking up, I'm excited to see whatever it is that you got, whatever you got cooking up, whatever comes down the pipeline. I'll, I'll, I'll be around for it. Awesome. Awesome. I'm excited too. <laughs> we'll, we'll both figure out what that's going to be. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm ready to get back to life. I, I miss living and I miss that's awesome man alright well thanks for listening everybody and we will see you next time